Well, on this Palm Sunday, we are going to be looking at the story of the triumphant entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. Jesus is outside of Jerusalem, and we pick up the story of Jesus getting prepared to enter the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. And then we'll skip down and look at verses 45 through 48. But Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, and then 45 through 48. The story of the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. This is the word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany... At the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as they had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt and set Jesus on it. And he rode along. They spread their cloaks along the road and he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. And on this Palm Sunday, may we be the men and women of God who hold on to every word of Jesus Christ. Amen. We all long for a king. It's interesting, the ancient map makers and those that designed ancient maps and globes, obviously not having the technology that we have today, when they got to the edges of the known world at the time, they would draw dragons and beasts of the sea. On one globe in particular, it says, on the very edges and the margins of the globe, it says, here be dragons. And it was interesting that the kings of the lands and of the empires would actually use that to their advantage. The kings would fight and claim the edges of territories and the edges of the known world. And they would stake the rightful claim. And their promise as king would be this, that we will defend you against the dragons. We will defend you against the beast of the sea. And we will defend you against all of those things that lie out in the edges of the known world. We all long for a king. 
The ancient kings often depicted themselves as dragon slayers. And so you can understand why 2,000 years ago, when the people heard that there was a king, a king that comes in the name of David, a king that comes in the name of the Lord, you can understand why the people 2,000 years ago went absolutely crazy. This is a crazy scene here. Do not minimize the scene here on Palm Sunday when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on that Sunday, which is the Sunday before Passover, where the Roman authorities would bring in extra guards and extra troops and extra security because they knew the people were ready to riot. And they knew they were longing for the king. You see, the great dragon slayer had returned 2,000 years ago, and they sang and they danced and they waved palm branches and they sang Hosanna. And so on this Palm Sunday, we remember and we celebrate that the king has returned. The great dragon slayer that had been promised has come to defeat sin and death and destroy all that is broken in the world. But I want to ask you the question today, what difference does it make? Yeah, the palm branches and the little children singing about a colt or a donkey, the the whole idea of Palm Sunday. Let's just get through with it and get to the main event next Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday. This is just another Palm Sunday after all, isn't it? And I'm here to say, if the king has truly come 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday, I want to ask you this question. Have you done business with the king? If the king has come, what difference does it make? Does it make any difference in your life that a king has come and he stands before you this morning and says, I am the king, bow down to me. If we never understand the impact of Palm Sunday, we'll never understand the impact and the significance of Resurrection Sunday next week at Easter. So let's look at this text together this morning. What does the king come to do? The first thing that we see here in Luke chapter 19 We see that the king comes to reclaim. The king Jesus comes to reclaim. What does he come to reclaim? He comes to reclaim that which rightfully belongs to him. We see in verse 30 and 31, Jesus has this incredible vignette where Jesus tells the disciples, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go into the village and I want you to untie the colt. And they're going to ask you, What are you doing with my property? And isn't that exactly what happens? They go in and they untie the colt and the owner of the colt, think about this. The owner of the colt is watching two strangers come in to his property and untie his colt and he rightfully asks the question, what are you doing with my colt? And I love the answer that Jesus tells them to give. Tell them the Lord has need of it. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's setting the stage for the last week of his life and saying, I have come to rightfully reclaim that which ultimately belongs to me. That cult of yours is on borrow. 
and the Lord has come. The king has come and he has need of it. You see, the reality is that the king Jesus has come to rightfully reclaim that which is his. Everything and everyone belongs to him and he's sending a message to the world. Shots have been fired and he's saying, I'm now coming to finally, ultimately, once and for all, reclaim what the Father has given me. Isn't this the what he has done, though, his entire ministry? When he's walking along and he sees the Galilean fishermen early in the gospel stories, what does he say? Drop your nets and come follow me. You see, he has the rightful ability and the authority to reclaim for himself that which ultimately belongs to him. Our hearts and our souls and our vocations and our retirement and our goals and our dreams and our children and our lives ultimately belong to him. Seek ye first what? The kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 9, earlier in this gospel, verse 23, what does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, I want you to understand this. If anyone would come after me... Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, to be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ is understanding that everything in your life, top to bottom, inside and out, ultimately belongs to Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is doing here by telling them that the Lord has need of it is sending shockwaves and should send shockwaves into your life this morning. The Lord has need of it. And the Lord looks at your life this morning and he says... I have need of your heart. I have need of your soul. Your heart and your soul, they belong to me. I have need of your life. It was interesting, a few weeks ago, I was having lunch with a, one of my former students when I was in youth ministry, and he was saying to me, he was saying, man, those, those missions trips were amazing. We went all around the world. And he said, and some of the places you took us were, it was risky. It was dangerous. But then he said this, but it was all worth it. You know, I get asked by parents so often, even when we send our youth here in this church overseas and international uh, missions trips, and they go, do we really need to send our kids there? Isn't it dangerous? Isn't it risky? Let me tell you something. You know where the most dangerous place for a teenager is? Sitting on the couch playing Xbox all day. That is the most dangerous place to put a teenager in North America, sitting them in front of a TV and letting them do whatever they want. You want to talk about risky business? You want to talk about something dangerous for their soul? Is sitting them down and walking away from them and saying, have your own way. No. Our children are not our own. Our lives are not our own. And God says on this Palm Sunday through the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord has need of you. And the question this morning is, have you yielded your life to him? The king came, comes to claim that which is rightfully his. The Lord has need of your life. Have you yielded? But not only do we see here in Luke chapter 19, the king comes to reclaim, but the king also comes to restore. 
In verses 37 and 38, the king comes to restore, and that's the reason they are able to say and shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In the Gospel of Matthew, the same scene that we read at the beginning of the service says, Hosanna, the word Hosanna in the Greek is the same word, Hosanna, but it's actually taken from a Hebrew phrase, Hoshia, which means save us. And so when the people of God are watching Jesus come riding in on a cult into Jerusalem, they understand or they have a hint of what Jesus has come to do, that he has come to restore that which is broken. You see, from Genesis chapter 3, The people of God are living in a broken world in the midst of destruction and darkness and sin and brokenness. And the people of God all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout redemptive history have been longing for one that would come in the name of the Lord, that would come, that would be like King David, that would restore righteousness to the land, that would restore that which is broken. And so you can understand why they are shouting out, blessed is he who comes. He comes in the name of the Lord. He comes in the name of the one most high. Glory to God in the highest. They are crying out in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of destruction, would you save us? It's the people of God longing for a king that would make things right again. And you sit here this morning, and whether you realize it or not, you live in a kingdom and you live in a world and you live in a life that is broken and dark. And for you this morning, I might not be enlightening you at all, that you feel the brokenness and the destruction every single day. You look at your life and you look at your life in such a way that you go, my life is an utter mess. But the good news this morning is this, the king has come. The king has come to fix that which is broken. The king has come to give you hope and to give you a future that in the midst of darkness and destruction, there can be light and hope. And this is what happens. In verse 39, the Pharisees aren't happy. The Pharisees are not happy in verse 39 with this celebration that a king has come to fix that which is broken. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And what does Jesus say? If they are silent, the very stones will cry out. What is Jesus talking about? He is talking about a cosmic reality that not only people, but creation itself, the very stones that you see here are crying out for redemption and restoration. You see, the whole curse that we see in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 not only affects people, but it affects places and things. It affects the entire cosmic order. And so what Jesus is saying is that I am the king that has come to not just fix people, but the entire world. This entire world is mine, and I have come to restore all of it. And even the rocks would cry out. And so I want to ask you this question. If Jesus has the power to transform mountains and hills and trees and stones, what might he have the power to do in your life this morning? The king has come to fix that which is broken. And if you are overwhelmed by brokenness this morning and overwhelmed by sin 
and overwhelmed by the mess that you have made of your life, then there's a king that has come to fix that which is broken, that even the stones cry out, save, help. He restores and he makes all things new. So the king comes and he reclaims. The king comes and he restores. But lastly, we see here, the king comes to redeem. The king comes to redeem. At the very end of the passage that we read, something very interesting happens. In verses 47 and 48, Jesus goes to the temple. And it's a very unlikely place for a conquering war hero to come. It's a very unlikely place for the king to go. But in order for the king to come and find redemption, in order for the king to come and bring about the redemption of his people, to purchase them back for himself, to redeem a people that are lost, to redeem a people that are broken, he has to go to the temple. But this is why it's peculiar. You see, a conquering hero here in this setting 2,000 years ago, we would have expected to ride in on a chariot. And he would have rode in with a crown on his head and a scepter in his right hand. And what would have been behind him? It would have been all of the defeated kings and princes of the foreign territories and the foreign lands that he had conquered. And they would have cheered him on as the conquering king and the conquering war hero. But he doesn't come in that way, does he? He comes in on a lowly colt, coming in by himself. And he comes in not with a crown, but on a colt. And where does he go? He goes to the temple. No, go to the throne. Go to Herod and say, Herod, you weren't able to accomplish it. You weren't able to defeat the Romans. Now I'm taking your place as king. So go to the Herod's palace. Take your rightful place on the throne. And go tell Pontius Pilate that we now mean business. But he doesn't. Because Jesus understood that that's not where redemption is found. He understood that to redeem a lost people, I can't go to the throne, but I need to go to the temple. Why? What happened in the temple? It's the temple that we see the sacrifice of the lamb. You see, the people of God understood one thing about redemption. That redemption was not found in a palace, but the redemption was found in the temple of God. Because it would be in the temple of God that the lamb was brought to be slaughtered and slain. And it would be the blood of the innocent lamb that would be shed on behalf of the redemption of the people of God that were lost and broken and living in darkness. And that would be the place of the lamb that was taken to shed the sins. To shed their blood for the sins of this world. Now remember what happened on Palm Sunday. We remember Jesus riding in. But for the Jewish people, it was the Sunday before Passover. Do you know what happened on the Sunday before Passover? Not only did Jesus ride in on a colt, it was on the Sunday before Passover, per tradition and per the words of Moses in the Old Testament, that all of the Passover lambs would be brought in. 
And so while Jesus is riding in on a colt, he is accompanied by all of the Passover lambs that would ultimately be chosen to be slaughtered, to be a sin sacrifice and an atonement for the sins of the people of God. One Jewish historian said that on that Sunday, you could have probably heard the cries of hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of innocent little sheep being brought into Jerusalem to be slaughtered. And who is in their midst? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus. You see, by Jesus going to the temple, he sends the message, I have not come to take the throne. I've come to take your place on the altar. I have not come to be king here in Jerusalem. I have come to lay down my throne and to lay down my crown. And instead of taking the throne, I will descend to the altar of God to become the Passover lamb. You see, he becomes the lamb without blemish. Jesus is king on Sunday, but just a few days later, he would be slaughtered as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, the miracle of Palm Sunday is that he is crowned on that day and they is hailed. But just a few days later, they would cry out, crucify. And he stands in our place, in the temple, treated like a rebel, treated like a criminal. You see, the miracle of Jesus and the good news for us this morning is that in order to redeem a people like you and me, he cannot come in and crush and destroy us. In order to redeem us, he comes in to be crushed himself, treated like a rebel, treated like an enemy. The king does not ascend, but he descends and he takes his place on the altar of God. It is what separates Christianity from every religion in the world. No religion in the world up until this point and no religion that we have ever seen, no movement has ever seen its leader descend in, in such a way that the leader says, in order to save my people, I will not crush the enemies, but I will allow myself to be crushed, poured out, broken, crushed, as the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of this world. You know, it needed to be a lamb without blemish, it's, we're told in the Old Testament. And isn't it interesting that Luke tells us in verse 48, but they could find nothing that they could do to destroy him. He, after all, was the perfect lamb without fault, without blemish. The perfect king becomes the lamb of God for you and for me. Malcolm Muggeridge is the late British journalist. We're told that early in his life he was a womanizer, devout atheist, but it would be late in his life that he would, even he says, become a reluctant convert to Christianity. But it was when he finally encountered the king and when he laid in his life encountered King Jesus, this is what Malcolm Muggeridge said. 
He said, we will look upon history and what do we see? Empires and kingdoms rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. In one lifetime, I have seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song, that God who has made them mighty would make them even mightier yet. I have seen a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world that the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown announce that he would restart and start the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. I've seen a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than all of the leaders combined, and more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I have seen American wealthier, and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than all the rest of the world put together. And so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or Julius Caesar. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, gone with the wind. England now part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped to found and dominate for three decades. All gone in one lifetime, gone in one lifetime, gone with the wind. But behind the debris of all of these supermen and self-styled imperial leaders, there stands the gigantic figure of one because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind may still have peace. It is the person of Jesus Christ, and I present him to you as the way, the truth, and the life. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the only question for you this morning is this. Have you given your life to this king? You cannot walk away this morning and say, he was an interesting man. There are only two options this morning for you. You can either crown him or you can crucify him. But do not walk out of here this morning saying, I think Jesus was pretty interesting because that is not an option. You either yield your life or you turn your back altogether. But you cannot just say he was interesting. And I would plead with you this morning, if you have not surrendered to the king, if you have not yielded your life to him wholeheartedly, that you could do so right now. If you need to submit to the king, I would encourage you to do so. You see, the king says there's amnesty for the rebels, that all who come and find their faith and hope in Jesus, there's amnesty, that Jesus died a rebel's death, that Jesus died like a criminal so that you could be crowned as one of his sons and daughters. Come to the king this morning. There's never been a king more gracious, No, never been a king more kind, the king who exchanges the throne for an old rugged cross.